You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's passage is from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy, ears heavy, sorry, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lies waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burnt again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Salome. Well, uh, John Calvin, at the start of... Calvin's Institutes, one of the most famous pieces of writing in Christian history. Uh, He writes this, Nearly all the wisdom we possess consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. What he's saying is that to know who you are as a human, you need to know something of who God is as your creator. The more you see of him, the more you will see of yourself. That's really what we need to know how to live. And in today's passage, we see that that's exactly what Isaiah had. Today's passage, Isaiah 6, is a remarkable one. It describes probably the the most significant moment of Isaiah's life, the thing that probably began his ministry and changed his whole life. It's an encounter with God. Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. God gave Isaiah a palpable experience of his glory and goodness. God made himself known to Isaiah, and in the process, we're going to see that Isaiah came to know himself. 
That's why this passage is so significant. We need to know God and we need to know ourselves. And Isaiah comes to understand both of these things in this moment. And so in the next little while that we have today, I want us to consider three things, the glory of God, the sinfulness of humanity, and the grace of God. First of all, the glory of God. Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The vision that Isaiah has of God is overpowering. It's overwhelming. Uh, The writer John Oswald uh, points out the key elements here. He sees God's majesty, the Lord sitting upon a throne. He sees God's transcendence. He's high and lifted up. The train of his robe, just the hem of his garment, fills the temple. And he sees God's holiness. The seraphim proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What exactly do we mean when we talk about God's holiness? It's a word that we're probably familiar with. We tend to use it as a kind of synonym for righteousness or virtue. That's that's not incorrect. But in the Bible, it primarily actually means difference, uniqueness, otherness. And that's why it's used of God. Ray Ortland writes, his holiness is simply his godness in all of his attributes, his works and his ways. And it's an exponential difference here. That's why the angels say holy, holy, holy three times. Essentially, they're struggling to describe the infinite perfection of God. Ortland continues that they're straining at the leash of language to say that God alone is God. He's not like us humans, only bigger and nicer. He's in a totally different category. He is holy. I actually think that the response of these seraphim uh, probably best illustrates the the holiness, the otherness, the uniqueness of God. Uh, The seraphim are most probably angels. Some conjecture that they're some kind of winged serpents, but the context suggests that they're angels, spirits created by God for his throne room. And that word seraphim generally means burning ones. These are impressive beings. In fact, whenever you see angels in, in the Bible, when they appear to people, they, they tend to overwhelm them and, and the person uh, often tends to want to worship them. They're so great. But here we see that even these extraordinary uh, beings are overwhelmed by God. Before his greatness, even these perfect beings can do nothing but praise and proclaim his holiness. And that actually says something, doesn't it? Like we think of angels as majestic and magnificent, but even they are coward almost before God. A.W. Tozer writes this, We must not think of God as highest in an ascending order of beings, starting with a single cell and going up from that to, to the man, to the angel, to the cherub, to God. No, God is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is is just finite, but the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. It's just in a totally other category. So just imagine then, if the angels feel the the gap between themselves and God, what about us? If we were to be confronted by God, when we see God face to face on the last day, how will we feel? 
What would it be like for us to encounter God today? Well, we see in the verses that follow how Isaiah experienced it. Verse 4, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says it's not just that God is different and powerful, it's that God is perfect and we are not. Isaiah feels not just God's greatness but his own sinfulness. We see here not just the glory of God but the sinfulness of humanity. As Isaiah sees the glory of God, he realises how far short he falls of that glory. There's something very raw about his response. As one writer puts it, Isaiah speaks with the intuition of a soul which has seen itself in the light of the divine holiness. As Altman puts it, Isaiah sees himself because he sees God. It's just like what Calvin said. In fact, Calvin goes on to say this, it's certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating God to scrutinising himself. For we always seem to ourselves uh, righteous and upright and wise and holy unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly and impurity. That's what's happening here. Isaiah is seeing who God is in all of his majesty and greatness and glory and perfection. And so he's seeing who he is. He's seeing himself in his sinfulness, his lack of glory. And yet even as Isaiah sees his sinfulness, he sees something else. He sees the grace of God. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The glorious God whose glory exposes and brings up our sinfulness then forgives our sin. And there's this beautiful picture of how he does it right here. Uh, How is his guilt taken away? By the burning coal from the altar. Now, Now, the altar in the temple was the place where the sacrifices were made in the Old Testament for sin. This is where sin was atoned for. And it required death. Hebrews 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Sin is so spectacularly bad that it can only be atoned for by death. And yet here we see that that death brings life. The death of someone or something else on your behalf brings life for you. That's what Jesus did. He died so that we could live. God is holy and glorious. We fall short of that. We are unclean. But Jesus has died for our sins, taken the penalty for them. To use the analogy here, he was sacrificed to atone for our sin. He went into the fire for us. He's like the burning coal. And now this burning coal is presented to us, brought to us, given to us. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's God's gift to us. Jesus died so that we might live. This is what Isaiah sees. This is what he experiences. He sees the glory of God. He sees his own sinfulness. And he sees the grace of God and it changes him immediately and profoundly. 
In verse 8, God declares that he has a mission and he needs someone to complete it. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Immediately Isaiah volunteers. Then I said, here I am, send me. And I just want you to notice how amazing it is the way things have changed for him. Just a few verses ago, Isaiah is overwhelmed by God's holiness. He's just on the floor. Woe is me. I, I can't stand before God. Now he's up on his feet, ready and raring to go because grace has transformed him. God's grace means, first of all, that he has been accepted. He's been embraced by God. He fears God's greatness in the right sense, but he no longer fears God's judgment. And now he's inspired. God's forgiveness and acceptance has given him this joy, this energy, this desire to proclaim. He has good news and he wants to share it. And I actually think you see here the pattern of the evangelist, the pattern of anyone who becomes part of God's work in this world. First, they're overwhelmed by the glory of God, but then they're overwhelmed by the grace of God. They feel their sin, their uncleanness, and then they experience the forgiveness of that sin and God's cleansing. And you see this all through the Bible. You think of Peter, denies Christ, but is restored and becomes a pillar of the first church. We think of Paul, overwhelmed by God's greatness on the road to Damascus, then becomes surely the greatest evangelist the world has ever seen. A man who saw himself as the chief of sinners and spent his life telling about the saviour of sinners. But always note the order here. First, there is the humbling before God, the sense of his greatness impressed upon someone in his holiness. And it's crushing, but only in a good way. It crushes our pride, it destroys our self-reliance, and then it leads us to his grace. As one writer puts it, it's a little bit like fire. It's destructive yet cleansing. It's frightening yet fascinating. What it, when it consumes, what it consumes, it leaves dark, but in the process it makes light. So it consumes up all of this dark stuff that we have and then leaves space for light and hope. I wonder then, have you experienced this yourself? Uh, there is, says Ray Ortland, a kind of traumatic self-discovery when you realise how far short you fall of God's glory. Uh, many of you have experienced this. You've, you've told me your stories, in fact. Uh, one, I remember one bloke talking about how uh, just before he stepped into doing a significant ministry, uh, just being feeling completely the weight of his sin, just being on the floor, feeling that weight, his unworthiness. Uh, in my own life, I can remember the times where I've just felt crushed by sin and then lifted up, seeing God's grace. Uh, I think this is necessary. We need to go to the deep place, the dark place, before we can see the light or shine it. The gospel is good news, and it's so good because, first of all, it's, it's bad news. It reveals our sin before it reveals God's grace. And unless you see the first thing, you won't truly appreciate the second. When you know God, you know yourself. You see his glory, so you see your sin. And if you're willing to see your sin, then God will show you his grace. But we have to be willing to go there. We have to be willing to go to the dark place, the deep place. This is not fun to do that. We don't enjoy doing that. We don't enjoy encountering ourselves in that way. We don't like talking about sin. 
We'd rather talk about it as a mistake or an indiscretion. It's not a lie, it's a white lie. It's not a pattern of sin, it's an addiction that we need sympathy for or something like that. And often, even when we do see something that's wrong, we then presume on God's forgiveness. We, we kind of gloss over our sin when we pray. We don't confess it because we don't feel it. We, when we confess, we presume that God will just forgive it. it we just imagine that it's just, just like that. But we need to remember that forgiveness is costly. That's what this passage is saying here. Something has to be burned up for us to have healing. It's so costly that God had to send his son to die for it. God is forgiving, but only because he chooses to be gracious, not because we deserve it. John Oswald writes, When we've seen God in his glory, we will know that God owes us nothing. We are not basically nice folks with an unfortunate tendency to mess up. We are proud, arrogant, self-centered, perverse, cruel, violent rebels in whom the stain of sin and sinfulness goes down to the last atom in the last molecule. And then he says, there is a strong likelihood that until we come to an understanding of ourselves like this, we will treat the grace of God, his unfailing, undeserved love as a throwaway item. Of course God loves me. That's his job. No, Oswald says, it's not his job. It is an unimaginable, unexpected, and indeed unnecessary wonder of the universe. And if we need any more warning against complacency, just read the rest of Isaiah 6. It's actually a really awkward end of the story. See, in verse 8, Isaiah volunteers for God's service and then God sends him out and you expect lots of great success. You want the story to just kind of go on and and you hear that he tells the gospel, people respond, there's a revival, there's lots of glory for God. It's awesome. But actually God sends Isaiah to pronounce judgment, to expose hard hearts and to send God's warning. Verse 9, he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand, keep on seeing but do not perceive. You see, the reality is for centuries God's people had been experiencing God's grace and had seen God's greatness. God had chosen them from among the nations. He'd brought them up out of Egypt. He'd given them the promised land flowing with milk and honey. But they'd scorned all of this. They'd taken it for granted. They'd ignored God's warnings and they'd shut themselves off from him. And now they're numb to what he has to say. Verse 10, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This is very sobering words. And actually they point to a key truth, a kind of spiritual motto or axiom. Every time we experience God's glory and hear about his grace, There is a spiritual progression. There's an action or a reaction that that means that we either draw closer to God or we move further away. Ray Alden writes, every time you hear the word of God preached, you come away from that exposure to his truth, either a little closer to God or a little further away, either more softened toward God or more hardened toward God. But you are never just the same. So how do you hear it? today. I mean, you've probably heard the story of Jesus a million times, and you've heard it again today. So how did you respond? How do you respond? Does it soften you today? Does it make you more receptive to him? If you've been a Christian for a while, is, is this a, do you still feel it? 
If not, are you getting harder? Perhaps you're becoming blasé. You might even becoming, be becoming resistant, scornful, angry of this message that is necessary, sick of this language of sin and guilt, and so you just want to ignore it. But there is a great danger in ignoring what God has to say. See, we often think of God's wrath in very lurid terms. I grew up in a church that was like a, a fire and brimstone church. We were constantly given warnings about God's anger against sin. But actually one of the scariest examples of God's wrath is when he lets people do what they want to do. He just lets them go. He lets them ignore him. Romans 1.28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to their sin to their desires, he stops their ears from hearing, their hearts from receiving, their uh, eyes from seeing. He lets them do what they want. If we ignore his glory, he won't show us his grace. That's what happened to God's people in this passage. Don't let it happen to you, to us. Baldwin writes, beware of a mind that looks for excuses not to believe. Beware of the impulse that always finds a reason to delay the response. Beware of thinking how the sermon applies to someone else. God watches how you hear his word. If you're ever again to receive it with at least the capacity for response that you have at this very moment, hear it now. Hear it now. Before you get harder. If you refuse it today, you become harder to it. So don't refuse it. And then see here the incredible hope. See, the hope continues on. Right at the end of this passage, if you go down to the end of the passage, you'll see that God promises that there will be a seed that will grow, that will bring life. Always there is hope with God. That seed would be that God's people returning to the land and ultimately lead to Jesus, the one who saves us, the one who shows us God's glory our sinfulness, but also God's forgiveness, his grace. There is always hope with God. If you're willing to see the glory of God, then you'll see your sin, but you'll also see his grace. Isaiah 55, verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The glorious God who is so far above us knows what we are like. And if we come to seek him, if we want to know him, he will show us who we are in our sinfulness, but he will also show us his grace. He loves to give forgiveness. He's ready to give it. He'll give it to you today if you ask for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this extraordinary encounter that Isaiah has with you. We recognize that we right now are praying to, worshiping the same God of Isaiah 6. Impress upon us, though, your greatness, your glory. Crush us a little bit today as we experience the weight of your glory. Enable us to see our sin. May we not just run away from that. And then, Lord, lift us up with your wondrous, wondrous grace. 
Lord, may we, uh, even just today, each one of us, feel these things so powerfully that we stand up and say, Lord, send me. Let me tell your glory. Let me tell the good news because I know it's good. Thank you, Jesus, for being the good news, for coming to die for our sin and to give us new life. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.